0: Pray with me, Father, we thank you for uh, a day like this that we can celebrate sacrifice. Lord, as we turn to your word here in just a minute, we're going to talk about the sacrifice of your son Jesus and how you call us as followers of Jesus now to be sacrificial in the way that we love and treat others. And yet, Lord, we have an example of living sacrifice in this holiday that we celebrate today the sacrifice of those who gave their lives for freedom in our democracy, and we're very grateful, Lord, for each person who has done that, and we do remember them today. And so, Lord, receive our worship. Receive the humility of our hearts. Lord, receive our open minds now as we come to your truth and your word. Fill us up, we pray, that we might be prepared for the week, the months, and even the years ahead through understanding your word to us. We pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I was uh, gone last Sunday and I was uh, traveling in Europe to a place called the European Leadership Forum. It was last summer that I said to our board, the Board of Elders, that as much as I'm thrilled with where we're involved with our missions as a church, we're involved in Africa and the Middle East and China and Mexico and lots and lots of places, that I felt like we could do a little bit more in Western Europe. Uh, that's particularly my passion because of the fact that much of our country, as so we're celebrating, uh, the sacrifice of our country today was, was built upon a lot of influence spiritually and religion-wise from Western Europe. And uh, that was the seat of the Reformation and some other great changes that have influenced you and I over the last hundreds of years. And, um, and, and that now they're really hurting, like they're in desperate trouble, spiritually, Europe is, and, uh, and we need to help them. And so uh, the place to start was this European Leadership Forum. It was a gathering of 500 different leaders from all over Western and Eastern Europe. I mean the cream of the crop of academicians and pastors and parachurch leaders and they get together for five or six full days to talk about their faith and what's going on in their countries. And so we had sessions all day long and about three weeks ago in preparation for going to this, the head of it, a guy by the name of Greg, called me and asked me if I'd be willing to lead a breakout session on how to preach faithfully and relevantly from God's Word. I'm glad he asked me to speak on that, because as I tell you guys, out of 22 different gifts in the Bible, I don't have 20 of them. So if he asked me to speak on hospitality, mercy, uh, helps, serving, tongues, interpretation of tongues, I would not have been able to help him. But on that one, I thought, okay, I teach, I'll do that. But I didn't have a lot of time. I was on my study break at that time, so I I took a whole day out of my study break, prepared a talk on how to preach relevantly. Couldn't really get my materials into him until after the deadline, and he knew that. He said, I won't make it work anyways. So when I got to the conference, um, I was speaking last Tuesday, and I I just, I I tend to see trains coming down the track at each other when they're about to hit each other, and I noticed in the conference book that that there was no mention of who I was, just Jamie Rasmussen speaking on this subject. There was really no write-up, there was no notes, there was no outline. All the stuff that I had sent in hadn't made it to the book. And uh, I thought I don't think that many people know that I'm going to be speaking in this breakout session. And there was like 13 others to choose from. So I went to the uh, desk where the leadership forum was running all the stuff, the front office, and I, I kind of brought it their attention. And they said, "Oh, don't worry, Pastor. We're, we're fine. We're going to make an announcement. And uh, don't worry, there'll be people there." So uh, they didn't make an announcement that morning. But you know, I'm here to serve, so I let it go. And what you guys know, I'm really good at. And so I uh, that was sarcastic. So I. I went to my session over lunch, and uh, I, I sat there for 25 minutes, and nobody showed up. I mean, no one. And I'm glad you all went awe because I felt like a moron. So nobody showed up, and, and that's actually not true. One person did show up. It was the sound guy who was going to tape what I said. So that made it even worse, you know. So the sound guy's there, and nobody's there. And for 25 minutes, I wait there, and finally, I look at the sound guy, and I said, I don't think anybody's coming. He said, I don't think anybody's coming. And so I, I went back to my room. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I'm going to own this with you. I was, I, was, uh, I was battling in my spirit. Would that be a nice way of putting it? I was ticked, I was hurt, I was frustrated. And uh, I'm back and I'm thinking, you know, I could go to another session right now and and spend the time doing that, but I thought, I don't want to. I'm mad, and I'm really frustrated with this. And and I knew, because I've been down this road so many times, that that I was going to be battling over the next few hours a, a battle that I would either win or lose between pride and humility, are you guys with me? Between my own selfish needs and my own hurt and wounds versus what's right, and what's best, and what have you. When I'm at that place, I I usually need to get away. My wife would tell you I'm kind of like a cat. You know, cats, when they're about ready to die, go off to die alone, and that tends to be me. I'm very self-sufficient, hopefully God-sufficient, but I thought, I just gotta get out of here. So I put my running stuff on, and I went out for a two-hour run. I actually only ran about 10 minutes, but I was gone for two hours, (laughs) it's true. And I was walking along this levee there in in Hungary, and I'm I'm just battling in my spirit and I was battling something that I think a lot of you guys battle. And that is that I, in one sense, um, it was wrong. In one sense, I was like, this is wrong. I prepared hard. I was even saying things like this. Like, I use church time to prepare this talk, you know, and, and, and they should have done a better job of organizing this, and I'm frustrated, and, you know, I was, just, I was, just, it was all about me. And, and, but then on the other side, I'm saying, but Rasmussen, let this go. Let it go. You are here to serve God, not to be served. You are here as an American, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of Europeans, to, to, to serve them. Don't be one of these brash, selfish Americans again that they all think people are. But just serve. Let it go. And I don't know if that's easy for you guys or not, but it's not easy for me. So again, for, for about two hours, I'm ping-ponging back and forth between justice and demanding my needs and, and the selfless call to let it go. One of the reasons it was so important I needed to let it go is I was having dinner that night with the head of the European Leadership Forum, the guy that asked me to speak. And it was with me and about four or five other leaders, and I knew he was going to bring it up. And I knew that I needed to get right with this, with God and with the thing. And the result of it was, after about two hours of wrestling intensely in my spirit, I really got to the point where I said, I'm letting this go. It's just not a big deal. I'm not going to mention, I'm not making a big deal. I'm really here to serve, and your pride was a little bit wounded, but let it go. And the cool thing is, when you wrestle with God on that level, you can do that. We've talked about that a lot around here. You can let it go. You can find that place of humility. So I got to dinner, and uh, Greg, the leader, eventually came in, and I wasn't going to mention a thing, and the first thing out of his mouth, because he is a strong leader, is he said, Jamie, I know that we really screwed up here today. And I thought, well, yeah, it's probably not a big deal. And I, but you know, I, you, know, I, I, you know, yeah, but, but you did, you know, and uh, that type of thing. And, and he said to me, he said, you know, I guess we really messed up and I feel terrible. And he said, I know you're leaving tomorrow at two o'clock. And uh, he said, but I'd love you to, uh, if you would, be willing to give us the same talk. And this time I'm going to make sure that we get the word out. I was like, I oh, don't have to do that. I've already let it go. I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't want to go back. But I did. And uh, they got the word out, and we had about 20 pastors the next day. It was really kind of cool. 20 pastors from all different countries um, come, and we talked about how to preach faithfully and relevantly from God's word, and, and it was a happy ending to a, a very tough time. Now, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because let's just be honest here. All of us go down that road almost every day, don't we? We go down the road where something happens in our life, big or small, usually on a relational level, whether it's with our spouse or with our best friend or with one of our kids or with a coworker or with a service provider or as a student with a fellow student or a teacher, we go down a road where our pride gets wounded and we're faced at a crossroad between are we going to demand our needs, the justice part of it be met, or are we going to let it go and be a bit selfless? Give me a head nod if you can relate to that. All of us get to that point every day. And what John is doing in this series that we're in right now called Getting the Most Out of Our Walk is he's leading us up a mountain. And we get to the mountaintop today as we get to the end of chapter 3 in which he's going to give us a clarion call, I mean a huge challenge, to choose the road of sacrificial selflessness when it comes to how we love. And that's what I want to share with you today. Kind of the ins and outs of how John helps you and I to walk sacrificially, to be able to choose in that moment, the moment of humility and others, not ourselves and even our own just demands. And so, three things that I want to share with you today that I think will help us all at least get on the same page theologically and hopefully in our practice as well on how we can walk sacrificially. And here's the first thing look up here on the screen, and that is that love. And that's the operative word that we're going to talk about here this morning. Love is the strongest indicator that someone is a follower of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I'm going to flesh out some things that aren't the strongest indicators here in a minute that are very important things in our lives. But one of the things John is going to communicate to you and I right now as we talk about how to walk sacrificially is that love is the strongest indicator that you and I are followers of Jesus. So look at how he says this to us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. He says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so don't miss, folks, that as John turns his attention here to this key word, love, he's now reached the summit of the mountain that he's taking us up, and he wants us to know that the defining characteristic of a Christ follower, that which lets the world, as well as the one who claims to follow Jesus, know that this is the real deal, is love. That nebulous, hard to define, often overused, and watered-down word and concept, love. Love. And don't miss as well how he communicates this to us. This is very important. He says there in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We know because... In other words, he's not saying that you become Christians and earn your way into heaven by loving others. No, he's already made it very clear in previous, in previous chapters as well as in the next two chapters that it's only through faith and faith alone in Christ that you and I come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But he is saying here that once we have faith, once we've trusted Christ for eternal life, once you become a follower of him, the proof now of this faith is going to be seen in how you love and treat others around you. He's very clear to say here that we know that our faith is true by something and that something is how we love. And so look up here on the screen. This is really important that we're clear on this. I don't want us to be confused here. He is saying that belief leads to life, eternal life, and life here now which results in love of others. That's the pattern that John sets out for us in this book that belief is what saves us, then it gives us life in our souls. Before, we were dead people walking, but now, as Ephesians 2 says, we have life in Him, and then that life manifests itself in love for other people. And so maybe look at it this way. Faith becomes the causal agent of your salvation, but love now becomes the proof of your salvation. Faith is the condition for having new life in Christ, but love's the result of it, showing you as well as others that you really are a follower. And so more than anything else, folks, what John wants us to see is that love is the strongest indicator that somebody is a follower of Jesus Christ. It's the proof. And some of you have already picked up on the fact of me saying it's the strongest indicator, and you're starting to bristle a little bit with that. You're saying, I'm with you, Jamie, that love is a indicator that one is a follower of Christ. But is it really the strongest? I believe it is. I believe that when 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, That is it's true. Or that when Galatians 5, 6 says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, that it's true. Or when Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give you to love one another, that it's true. Or when he said in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, that it's true. I mean, all over the scriptures, we're commanded that the greatest thing we can do in showing ourselves as followers of Jesus is love those around us. I want you to think of all the other legitimate and even biblical indicators that you and I use today. To show the world that we are followers of Jesus, and then ask yourself if any of these great and legitimate things we do come close to the power of love. Look up here on the screen. I want you to think about moral righteousness. The fact that Christians, you and I, now have a heightened value system, clearly higher than the world that we live in. But we're now honest, hopefully. Hopefully. We now don't cheat on our taxes, we now don't cut corners in our business, we don't engage in drunkenness, sexual deviance, abusive language, or breaking the laws of the land. I mean, we are hopefully a people who have been set apart in our holiness and our righteousness. I believe John is saying that as good and important as it is to develop a moral lifestyle befitting of a follower of Christ, love is a more convincing thing to an ongoing world as well as to your mind and heart that you're really his. That yes, have your moral lifestyle because it's critical to your faith in Christ, but love is a stronger indicator that you are really his and his followers. Or additionally, as you're thinking about that, think about activist causes. I mean, Christians are really good at this today. We go on record being against this and for that. We've communicated to our world today that we're against abortion, against pornography, against the abuse of God's creation. We've communicated that we are for prayer in public school, for the Ten Commandments displayed in public places. We are for the protection of the traditional family. And folks, I tell you right, all these things are great things to communicate. I mean, they are very good things. They're worthy things. And if we don't speak up, who's going to? So I am very much for that. But I think what John is saying here and what Jesus affirmed is that these things, these activist causes, are firecrackers compared to the nuclear power of love that will convince an unbelieving world of who Jesus really is. Or as you're thinking about that, think about all the apologetic and doctrinal arguments that we're known for today. You know, the Bible Answer Man on Christian radio or the Case for Faith books by Lee Strobel. Or all the great Bible colleges and seminaries that have popped up in the last 100 years that teach our kids how to think with a Christian worldview. Again, these are awesome things. My kids are involved in them. I'm involved in them. They're they're wonderful things for us to help convince an unchristian world of the cogency of the Christian truth claim. And we should continue to do these things. It's just that I think what John is getting at here is that these things are peewee football compared to the NFL game of love that you and I are called to. Look up here on the screen, folks. John is saying that love matters most. It's how we know that we have passed from death into life. It's love that lets us know that what we claim is true. And the reason that this is so important is that without love, the love that you and I have for each other, as well as for all the people outside the fold, without this love, we're not going to have any internal assurance that we are really His and that He is changing us. we're also not going to stand much of a chance of convincing an unbelieving world that Jesus is real. I mean, even with all of our moral righteousness, our activist causes, our apologetic arguments, if somehow our love capacity and our lovability does not demonstrate supernatural and divine characteristics, then God says it's just a game. And it's a game that you're probably going to lose in the end because how the church has always influenced culture has been on a relational level in the way that it has loved and treated those around us and yes the other things matter don't go out of here today saying jamie says morality doesn't matter that causes don't matter and the doctor doesn't matter you guys know me better than that of course those things matter they're integral to our faith it's just that there is a hierarchy And God comes along, and he says that once you've established those other things, love now becomes the name of the game. It's the proof that you really are his. So I was flying back uh, on Thursday from my my trip, and uh, we had a really long flight from Frankfurt, Germany, into Chicago. Ten hours. And I got on the back of the plane, you know, where I I was sitting, and uh, and I was just like three rows from the bathroom there, and and the way back of the plane, this huge plane, and uh, I got an aisle seat. And the seat next to me was empty, one of the only empty seats on this plane. And then there was some 22-year-old kid in the window seat. And i got to tell you, my very first thought was, I'm so glad I have an empty seat next to me. I'm so glad I don't have to talk to anybody on this trip. I got up at 4 in the morning to head back. My daughter's graduating from high school the next night. i got to preach four times on Sunday. I thought, I need a break. And so I I sat there in the aisle seat, and I could tell that this kid uh, wanted to strike up a conversation. Now again, we're here talking about sacrifice today, right? So you got a choice in that moment. And, and, you know, nobody's watching except God. I mean, none of you were there. And so, you know, I thought, you know, I could, I could slip out of this thing. But I thought that that would not be right. And so I started engaging this guy in conversation. And invariably, you know the question he's going to ask, right? What do you do? I want, I'm a plumber. Why? What do you do? You know? And... Uh, <laughs> But I said, no, I'm, I'm a pastor. And, you know, every time I tell people I'm a pastor, I'm, I'm telling you, I, it's happened so much, that that veil goes up. You guys know what I'm talking about? The veil goes up. Oh, that's nice. Well, as long as you're happy, which is basically saying you're an idiot, you know. And, and so, you know, <laughs> why would you choose a profession like that? And, and, uh, but he didn't. He actually had a little bit more interest in, in this. And, and, and he started telling me his story on a spiritual level. And, and he was just a, you know, one of your typical, very confused, lost Western European young people. You know, he's kind of floating around Europe with his girlfriend, and they were doing odd jobs and really into the party scene. And in fact, he said it's going to be real tough for me to make it on this flight. You know, I got my pack of Lucky Strikes here, and I got to go ten hours without a cigarette. You know, and just it was just very tough for him in that. And, uh, and and he started to share a little bit about some of his his spiritual views. And again, you and I live in a postmodern world, so we know what that's like, right? He said, you know, I really like Buddhism, and I and I really think people are too hard on Islam. And uh, you know, Christians, boy, they're so judgmental. And he said, you know, and, and it's just become one big institution anyways, you know, and he's and he sharing me all that stuff. And, uh, and I thought, boy, you know, I, 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 what do I do here? I, I thought, you know, I, I have an answer to every single thing he just mentioned. I got an earned master's degree in theology. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I've looked into this stuff. I, 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 I got 25 years on this kid. I thought, this is Godzilla versus Bambi if I ever saw it. I thought, you know, I mean, I'm just telling you. And, and he's not going anywhere. I got eight hours with him. I thought... <laughs> This is like, no, really, I thought, I pictured like a, a t-ball. I thought, it's was just set up, you know. And then I stopped, and I thought, but you know, I'm not sure that if I go down the, the moral, uh, the, the, the apologetic, are, that I'm really going to convince this kid uh, about who Jesus is. I, I really don't think that that's going to do. He's, he definitely said to me, he's had friends who have tried to ram this stuff down his throat and didn't really appreciate it. So I thought, Jamie, I think you better take another tactic. So I did what a lot of you do, oh, I dropped my pen, I did what a lot of you do, and that is that I, um, I decided to share my story with him. I find stories are very powerful. And so I said to him, I said, you know, it's funny, his name was Jonathan, I said, funny Jonathan, I, I didn't grow up in the institutional church, in fact, I had very little room for it. I said, I pastor now a pretty large institutional church, but I said, you know, I'll share with you a minute, I don't even think that's the point. I, I, I said, I, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 17 years old, just a little bit younger than you, and I did so because I felt so guilty for my sin and I said that's really the operative thing here is is sin and guilt and I said I I knew that I was separated from God I knew I wasn't close to him and I said when somebody shared with me the gospel of Jesus not joining a church not signing on the dotted line but just the gospel of Jesus and that he came for me and wanted to have a relationship with me that made sense and I said so you know almost 30 years ago I accepted Christ as my savior And I said, and you know, the sad thing today is, I know you're frustrated with the institutional church, and I said, so am I at times. I said, the sad thing is, is that Jesus didn't come to build an institution. He came to start an organic community of followers of himself who are radically sold out to him in soul-abandoning faith and now want to love other people into that same kingdom. And I said, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. I got to tell you, he looked at me, and he said... I've talked to a lot of Christians. Nobody's ever explained it to me like that. He, he said, I never understood it. He said, my dad is from Canada, and he's an organic farmer. And he said, so as soon as you use that word organic, I get that. That means pure. And, and, and he said, to think that that's what Jesus came to do. Uh, folks, he's this close to accepting Christ. I nudged him a lot in that direction. He's not quite ready yet, but I got his email. He got mine. We're going to continue to talk. But it reminded me that conversation that you and I, once again, have a choice every day of how are we going to treat people. What road are we going to go down in our relationality and how we approach those around us, even when it comes to talking about our faith and their lives. John tells us that love is the strongest indicator that you're a follower of Jesus and that each moment of each day we got a choice in how we're going to love those around us. Now, once you get this, the only question that you and I need to be asking then is then what kind of love is John after? What kind of love is God and Jesus after when it comes to you and I buying into this idea that love really is the strongest indicator, that we're followers of him? Or to put it maybe more pointedly for you and I today— What is it that we don't understand about love in our 21st century postmodern, post-Christian society that John knows and that God knows and is most concerned about? And so here it is. Here's point two on your outline this morning, and I think you're going to like this, though it's a hard pill to swallow, and that is that the acid test of love is self-sacrifice that meets a real need of others. This is what I wrestled with, when I was nobody showed up to my talk it's what I wrestle with each moment of each day that if you and I at all say that love is what really God is after for in our lives here's what it's defined as it is self-sacrifice that meets the need of other people and so look at how John goes on to say this to you and I in the next verses in verses 16 to 18 of his letter this is fascinating it's almost like he reads our mind if we ask the question well what do you mean by love he says by this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, for the sake of clarity, I want you to notice three things that John does here to communicate to you and I the kind of love that he's talking about here. He's not going to let us wiggle out with some hallmark definition of love or some version of love that you get in a country song today. Three things that he does here for us. He gives us love defined in verse 16, love exemplified in verse 17, and then love clarified in verse 18. Three ways of attacking the same thing that you and I are crystal clear on what love is. Notice first he defines it in verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And so, folks, don't miss this. Love at its core, he's saying, is sacrificial. In order for love to be something, it's got to cost you and benefit another. Do you see that there? The Bible is crystal clear in this over and over again that lots of people are going to try to say they know what love is. Lots of people are going to try to say, I love you. But the reality is, is that love only becomes love when it has a self cost to it and a benefit for another person and though that can come on an action level or a relational level or an emotional level or a physical level comes on all different kinds of levels the reality is is that it's not love according to the bible unless it says no to something in your life and yes to something in somebody else's life And so if you simply say no to something in your life and deprive yourself but don't actually do so to benefit another's need, this is not love. It might be sacrificial but it's a sacrifice that has no object and hence it's not the kind of love that God is talking about. And if conversely you meet a real need in another person's life but it doesn't really cost you anything, you don't have to lay down your life for it at all, this might be a good and beneficial thing but it's not the head-turning God-proving kind of love that he says his followers are about. No, it's the kind of love sacrificial is that says no to something in you that costs you and meets a real need in another person's life. I heard Marshall is probably one of the uh, foremost authorities on the Book of First John today, and in his commentary on First John, he gives kind of a, a silly example, but I think it really brings home the point. He says, say you're sitting by a lake one day and just reading a book, enjoying the sun, and somebody runs by you and jumps into the lake and drowns themselves for you. He said, what benefit would that be? What benefit would it be for somebody to jump into a lake when you didn't need them to jump in the lake, give their life for you when you're sitting on the side of the lake doing just fine? He said, on the other hand, if you're swimming in that same lake and you're drowning yourself, and somebody comes along, dives in the lake, takes you to the shore and saves you, while at the same time gives their life to do that and drowns themselves, he'd say we all would agree that that is love and that that is sacrificial love. And I think the point is clear. They're saying love without something that costs you and benefits another is not really love. But when it does cost you and it does benefit another, now you're getting somewhere in what love is. It's love defined. But then notice in verse 17 that he gives us an example of this sacrificial love. I call this love exemplified. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how can the love of God abide in him? I focus on a little phrase there, the world's goods. Fascinating phrase. It simply means, and I quote, the resources needed for life in this world. It's the necessary means to make it in any culture or setting that you find yourselves in. It's the bare necessities, if you will, but the necessities nonetheless to be warm and well-fed. That's what James or John is saying here. I, like a one American Bible commentator says it, he says, and I quote, and everyone who can afford this book comes into this category. <laughs> so he's basically saying when it says there the world's goods, it's referring to just about every one of us here who live in the Western world. We got the world's goods. Even in the recession, many of us still got food and shelter. We're doing okay. We got the world's goods. But then notice that John contrasts this to a brother in need, someone who has little or nothing, someone who's not making it in the culture or setting that God has placed them in, whether it's your own or even across the world. And in bringing these two ideas together, he's giving us an example here. He's saying if you fall into the category of the world's goods and you see somebody who has a need and you do nothing, nada, to meet that need, don't call yourself a loving person. He said that would be an example of an unloving person, somebody who's not willing to take action and love somebody around them in such a way that costs you and benefits them. And then as if all of this were not enough, like we're saying, okay, John, we get the point. Love defined, love exemplified. He, had, he has one more thing for optimal clarity. Look at verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love with word or talk, but in deed and truth. And this needs very little explanation. He's simply making sure we get it. The kind of love that God is after The kind of love that proves that we know him and proves to a looking world that Jesus is real is one that is more about actions than words. No armchair quarterbacks, no backseat drivers allowed, God says. And so do you see, folks. John is saying there's one thing to know and say amen to the truth that love is the strongest indicator that we are followers of him But then he goes on to say that what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals, is how one defines and shows love. And he says that only radical, sacrificial love will do, marked by something that costs you but meets a real need in another person. And so what does this look like? Because a lot of us might say we're doing this every day, but what does it look like? Years ago, I was at a conference when I was a young very impressionable pastor just starting out in my ministry as a conference in Chicago and there was a pastor speaking there from uh, a church in Dayton Ohio called Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church and this was one of the largest United Methodist churches in all the Midwest there and he was speaking there just on, on Christian issues and love and things of that nature and how to grow your church And uh, this is an evangelical church, very, very strong in their faith and their belief. And he shared that the mission statement of their church was right out of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus says we're here to reach the lost and set the oppressed free. And so he said, you know, really the the whole mission of our church is to reach lost people and give them the gospel, but then also to help people on a tangible level, because we're in some rough areas of Dayton, Ohio, help people to understand that God really loves them by meeting their physical needs. And then he shared something that absolutely blew me away, folks. He said, and so as a result of this, here's what my wife and I are doing for the next 10 years of our lives. He said, everything that we do for our family, we've committed to mirroring for a inner city family, whether it's big or small. And those of us in the audience are saying, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, if I buy my children a set of clothes, then I'm committed to buying an inner city children, group of children a set of clothes. He said, if I take my kids to the dentist, then that many inner-city kids get to go to the dentist. He said, if I send my kids to camp, those many kids get to go to camp. He said, if I buy school supplies for my kids at the start of school, I make sure that that same number of kids from the inner city get school supplies. He said, if I take my family on a vacation, he said, I set aside the same amount of money to make sure that some other kids get to go on vacation. And then he said, and when I send my kids to college, he said, that many other kids are getting to go to college. And he knew what we were thinking, he looked at us and he said, and I'm not independently wealthy, I'm just a pastor paid by the church. But he said, we are structuring our lives so that what we do for our family also benefits another family. i got to tell you, i had never heard something like that all my life, before I was a Christian or since I've been a Christian. I thought, that, that is so radical. That, that is so loving. That is so, quite frankly, Jesus-like. It, it's something that costs you but meets the real needs of others. And I don't tell you that story to necessarily guilt trip you into doing that here today, though if that's what God puts on your heart, go for it. I tell you that story simply so that you might be thinking for your own life, now don't miss this, what kind of love do I have that might be very Jesus-like in loving those around me? That's why I tell you that story. I think that's what John wants us to walk away from this passage with, that when we see love defined and exemplified and clarified— In this way, we're supposed to ask ourselves, now how am I doing this in the life of those around me? How do I have a love that's defined this way so that others might turn their heads and say, whoa, who have you been with, to which I can say, I've been with Jesus. You know, I'm actually very encouraged about Scottsdale Bible Church on this level. One of the reasons I felt very comfortable coming here um, two and a half, three years ago was because this church really does take seriously the call to, to love others in an action-oriented way. Part of our bylaws say that one of our five driving values is, and I quote, to release people to selfless service. And Daryl led the way hugely like that for 25 years. As a result of that, we got plenty of people that are involved in, in neighborhood ministries and Phoenix Rescue Mission and missions to Tanzania and food banks and shelters. I, I mean, I, I just hear story after story out of this church of what you folks, what, how God is using us to love those around us. And what you need to know, because this is really an encouragement to you, is just to keep on keeping on there, because in the hands of God, that that stuff is very powerful when we choose to love in action-oriented ways in our service. You don't know this, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is such a cool story. I don't know if you remember, but a few months ago when the Haiti disaster came, just unbeknownst to many of you, we just decided to take up an offering at the end of one of our services to give it to Haiti. And you guys are so generous. Uh, our church, in one offering not announced, in addition to our regular offering, gave $141,000 to Food for the Hungry for the disaster in Haiti. And we sent that right off to Food for the Hungry the very next day. We sent it so quick and so, um, and so much that, that it allowed Food for the Hungry to get on the ground there in Haiti and set up shops so fast, because they're already there, but allowed them to really set up shop, that the UN took notice of this. This is a true story. The UN took notice and awarded Food for the Hungry a $2 million grant right then to help in the rebuilding of Haiti. So the $141,000 that you folks gave in the hands of God, because it was given so quickly and sacrificially, allowed Food for the Hungry to get an additional $2 million. I hear stories like that, and I say, only God. Only God. And that's what he does, as we'll see in a minute here, when you and I love others in the way he's called us to. But we don't love just in service. What I want you to hear today, too, is that the real defining way that you and I are going to love, and this was the point of my two stories earlier, is in our relationality. I think this is the greater challenge to Christians. I think Christians today are really good at being activists, really good at having our moral lives together, though that might be debatable, uh, really good at at our doctrine. Uh, We're really good at being missional, but the reality is, is that most Christians have a long way to go in how we really treat others around us on a daily level in our relationships. And yet that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's what you're going to be able to apply this week from today's message. You might have an experience like I did at the European Leadership Forum where your pride gets wounded and you've got a choice right then about what road you're going to go down. Is it going to be about you or others? Is it going to be about God or is it going to be about the other side? What's it going to be about for you? That You might have a choice when it comes to sharing your faith with a lost person. Are you just going to argue with that person and try to win the argument and show them how much you know? Or are you going to love them in the name of Jesus and be more of a listener and a storyteller and share the truth in and woven in and through that? I think it really does depend on how we treat and love others and the level of our love for those around us. So it's not just service, it's relationality. Are you starting to get the idea here? It's walking sacrificially. And it's what's defined Christ followers for thousands of years now. And I'm telling you, it literally has the power to cause Scottsdale and Phoenix to be turned upside down for the sake of Christ. More powerful than any moral righteousness, activist, apologetic argument you and I could ever produce. And here's the cool thing with this word done. Is that in the end, it also creates a deep sense of purpose and peace for you and I. It's true. In fact, look with me at how John wraps up chapter 3. He shares with us quickly here three things that walking sacrificially does or leads to in the lives of those who dare to live as Jesus lived. And the first one is, is that walking sacrificially leads to an assurance that you're in the truth. we well, have already established this. It lets you know that you really are His. But John repeats it again. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, By this we know that we're of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. And whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. He says, By this we know that we are of the truth. By what? How we love. So when you see God's love poured in and through you to the lives of other people, he says, Rest assured, you're his. And by converse, when you find yourself not being very loving and hating and choosing self, worry a little bit. He's saying that should cause you to pause and say at the very least, am I walking with him? Am I really his in this moment? Because the answer is you're not. But you can be as you follow and submit to and choose the road that Jesus wants you to choose. And then secondly, notice as if that were not enough, that when you and I are walking sacrificially, this leads also to answered prayer. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, again, because God's love is being poured through us, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The commandment, again, to love. And so don't miss a logical progression here, folks. This is kind of life-changing. He says, when you love others as Jesus did, this assures you that you are his. You then have confidence before him. And when you have confidence, you have faith, and you're going to have answered prayer. Whoa. So you and I get answered prayer all because we choose to walk sacrificially and to love others and to love him. And to be sure, it doesn't mean every prayer gets answered. He'll go on in chapter 5 to say that the prayer we ask also needs to be according to his will. So it's not like a divine candy machine where you put in the nickel of love and we get our candy bar. I mean, that's not what this is. But it is saying that the only way we are going to find answers to prayer is when we walk with him, and walking with him involves loving others in the name of Jesus. And when you do that, you're going to find more answered prayer. And then lastly, in this one, it's the most powerful for me is that walking sacrificially leads to abiding in Christ. I can't tell you how many times a Christian will say to me, I just want more of God's presence. I just want to know that he's with me when I'm really struggling. Well, guess what? As you learn to walk sacrificially, you're going to get a sense of his presence. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, and this is this commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given. I call this dual abiding, that when you love, he abides in you and you in him. It's the closest possible union, as one Bible commentator says, that you're going to get this side of heaven, all because you've learned to abide in him. So as we wrap up this morning, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Uh, What is your life going to be about? Is it going to be about living for yourself? Or is it going to be about living beyond yourself? And the second question is, what are you going to spend the rest of your days on? Are you going to spend it on you? Or are you going to spend it on God and others? What the Bible tells us over and over again is that if you want living waters flowing out of your soul, if you want to have the assurance that you're really His, if you want to know Him, like you know a good friend, it's going to be because you have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ built on an unwavering faith and trust, as well as an unconditional love for those around you that learns to walk sacrificially as you follow God and pour into them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that once again your word comes along as we talked about even earlier today. It truly is relevant. It's relevant on its own. We don't need to make it anything. And Father, I thank you that as we've allowed John to speak his words of truth and love to us here today that, uh, Lord, it has the power and capacity to penetrate and transform our lives. Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one of us here this morning that won't have the opportunity, if not today, shortly this week, to truly show whether we are followers of Jesus and how we treat and love others around us. Lord, it's a sad thing that Christians aren't always known for being kind and caring and empathetic and generous and helpful. Lord, we tend to be known at times for being rather self-serving. So, God, I pray that that would be different for Scottsdale Bible Church, and that, Lord, for the folks that call this church their home, and more importantly, call you their Savior and Lord, that, Lord, you would cause them to walk sacrificially, lovingly this week. And, Lord, as you do that, would you use that to build your kingdom in the hearts and minds of those that you have called and chosen for your kingdom? God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that both of those things come to us in Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. And the whole church says together, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.